Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as family on this beautiful Sunday morning. Thank you for giving us the time before to sing as unto the Lord. May our hearts be glad in doing so and be so very grateful for your grace and your love and the opportunities you give us day in and day out to bring glory to you. Father, thank you so much for your patience, your loving kindness, your faithfulness, although we aren't always faithful. Special prayers, Father, for those still lost in this world and those also from this congregation that can't be with us here this morning but truly desire to be so. May their spirits be brightened knowing that they are with their family this morning in spirit as we worship you. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings that they be on this morning's message, that it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message is a continuation, part 25, of why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared. I'm going to be speaking uh, a little slower today as well so I can get my breathing right, so I don't blow my vocal cords out and have to call and back up, just so you know, uh, Scott's uh, my, um, what did they call that in WWF when you tap somebody in? Yeah, Scott's my tag team, Ivan Putski. <laughs> I can tag him in at any point, and he can finish the lesson. So just uh, bear with me while someone's got me in a chokehold. Tuesday's lesson was a nice review of Sunday's lesson. Uh, and not that it matters, but everyone I've spoken to regarding, this is ongoing, regarding the Tuesday night reviews has been very pleased with what the Spirit's been doing in their hearts. On this topic of divine patience, never think that review isn't a good thing. It's one of the greatest blessings we have in time. God reveals his patience with us as we are delivered. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> that's why we review. Because you know what? You're stupid. And you're sheep. And you're dumb. And you don't get it the first time, or the second, or the third, or the fourth. Should I continue? You just don't. You're not that smart. You're stupid. Compared to God, you're really, really stupid. See, even with no voice, I can insult you on a Sunday morning. It's not really insulting. It's actually edifying. A person that knows better, knows the heart of Christ, knows that those things are stated in divine love. So never think that review isn't a good thing. That would be a huge mistake. It's actually one of the great blessings we have in time, and God reveals His patience with us through that time as we are delivered. And frankly, uh, maybe less so on a morning like this because of my voice, I tend to cover a lot of ground on Sundays and synthesize a lot of concepts. So do yourself a favor. Take advantage of the grace given to you on Tuesdays. With that said, I was reading my Bible on Saturday morning and came across a passage in Luke that I will most likely eventually write a blog on. And it's related to the point the Spirit's been bringing up as of late. That is God's patience. Go to Luke 13, 1. 
Luke 13, 1. Luke 13, 1. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Uh, there was some abominations going on in the temple. People were going about, uh, the priesthood was going about the sacrifices, and there was some slaughtering going on in the temple. It was complete uh, blasphemy, and it really enraged the Jews, but that's the scene. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard. And he came looking for fruit on it, and, it did, and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And this is a picture of Israel if you're catching it. Might as well throw it out. And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir. For this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, cut it down. Up here on the board. More on God's patience. The parable of the man and the fig tree in Luke 13, 6-9 speaks to both God's divine patience and the Lord Jesus Christ's intercession on man's behalf. That's who was interceding, by the way, for the fig tree. God waits patiently to save man. And Jesus Christ, your Lord and Savior, is there interceding for you. Again, that's the parable. And it's a wonderful illustration. Like I said, I was reading it on Saturday. And of course, God's patience was on my heart uh, for this morning's lesson and this past week's, of course. And so I thought I'd share that with you, that uh, patience in the Bible is a big deal. But you should also understand that the Lord Jesus Christ is interceding uh, on your behalf while God waits, waits patiently to save you. This is the Lord's heart at every phase of salvation. You might say, well, that was great, but now I'm saved. It doesn't end there, as I've taught you. You are saved daily. You are delivered. Remember, another word for saved is delivered. You are delivered daily. So the Lord's heart at every phase of salvation is to intercede for you, is to intercede for God's uh, patience on your behalf, not just when you are saved positionally, but also when He saves you during sanctification. Go to Psalm 103, verse 8. Psalm 103, verse 8. <clears throat> Psalm 103, 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. Amen? That's patience and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, thank God, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame, he is mindful that we are but dust. Again, God's patience, Christ intercedes for us on our behalf. God waits patiently to save man. Go to Psalm 145, verse 8. 145, 8. I think we forget this sometimes. We sort of take glory in ourselves when we're, you know, patient with somebody who's irritating us. Um, And it's ridiculous because we should be glorifying God and we forget about how patient He is with us every single day. Verse 8, Psalm 145. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger. Again, patience and great and loving kindness. The Lord is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and your godly ones shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men your mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Again, this ties back to God's patience all the way back to that parable that I had read on Saturday that we just read together in Luke 13, 6-9, which speaks to both God's divine patience and the Lord Jesus' intercession on man's behalf. God waits patiently to save or deliver man. And to our initial point this morning, up here on the board, never think that review isn't a good thing. It's one of the greatest blessings we have in time. God reveals His patience with us as we are delivered. Thank God for His patience. Thank God that He says, go ahead. Here's another lesson from another angle on the same topic. Here's yet another lesson on the same topic from another angle. And He keeps doing this over and over and over again. And it's only man that complicates things. I believe this is one of the things the Spirit's been trying to teach us or at least remind us of. And this is something that we certainly see in the lives of the apostles too. Not just that they have patience because that patience is developed or was developed in them but is also developed in us. So not just that They have patience, but to respect and fear the Lord who exercises patience with them. We can all learn a lot from the apostles. You might ask, why does God exercise so much patience? I mean, why does He allow so much time for His children? The answer, at least fundamentally, revealed in the Bible is simple, and it certainly is tied to sanctification, patience and sanctification up here on the board. God glorifies Himself by sanctifying us. This has been a theme all week. God glorifies Himself by fulfilling His own desires in us. Since we are slow to learn, He must be slow to anger, divinely patient. He exercises patience that our flesh could never perform. Think about it. 
think if you were God for one moment and he was dealing with you. Imagine if you were God for one moment, for one day, and he was dealing with you. Knowing everything that you, you've learned, knowing everything that you know, intimately, and yet there you are, sinning your, sinning your butt off. There you are, having terrible, ungodly thoughts and actions. And what's he do? What would you do? You probably, what would you do? Would you last a day with yourself? Would you last a f- 10 minutes with yourself? Maybe. Yet God, day in and day out, sanctifies us. And without patience, there really couldn't be sanctification because we are slow to learn. And thank God He's slow to anger. And this is, of course, to glorify Himself. Because in the end, it's His good work by grace. So you see, once you have this big picture in full view, you realize the truth about what the Spirit stated on Tuesday. True faith endures, revealing His light in the end. True faith endures, revealing His light in the end. God gives each of us a measure of faith, not all at once. We have to learn. We have to be put to the test. Our faith is put to the test. Like I say, it's annealed. He gives us time to settle in. He gives us time to strengthen, to find our resolution, to find our sense of confidence, our uh, sense of direction even. And this is how we endure. This is why the saints, true saints, uh, always persevere, always bear fruit. And this reveals His light in the end. And so this is the big picture. It's all about glorifying God in time. Hopefully you read my blog uh, this weekend titled God and His Artists where people are glorifying themselves, giving grace and then bringing glory to themselves. Uh, It's disgusting. It's vile. But our entire culture um, pivots on these things. So-called art hijacked by the flesh. That's not faith, and it certainly does not bring glory to God. Back to our lesson. The running corollary to the point on this board is up here. God's work never fails. If He saves you, He sanctifies you. No questions. No, quote, free will options for the believer. For some of you, this will ring true There's no such thing as a so-called carnal Christian. And I'm using a borrowed definition uh, that really means that some people believe that there are such people out there that are saved and then are able to turn their back forever and ever on God because they have a free will. That's a garbage doctrine from the pit of hell. Do not buy into it. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. That is, someone who thwarts God. That would be to say that God and Jesus Christ are both liars. When we are saved, God sets a new direction on our hearts, even though we aren't perfected yet. I like the way MacArthur says this. He says, I think, Scott, you mentioned this on Tuesday, we're given direction, not perfection. We're heading in a certain direction, and that direction is set. If we're saved, that direction, although it might vary, does not turn 180 degrees. That would imply that He has lost us, and Jesus Christ Himself said He's never lost one. Direction, not perfection, my friends. And here's one last, I need you to concentrate. Some of you are going to get this, maybe some of you won't. It's okay if you don't yet. It's okay if it doesn't make total sense right now. But I want to share it with you, those of you who are able to grab hold of it. 
So I'll call it a maturity principle, for lack of a better term. And it occurred to me while listening to Tuesday's lesson, I'll title it, Practical Sanctification. The power already exists in you, but the perspective doesn't. Think of sanctification. The power already exists in you. You are, if you're saved, you're already indwelt with the dunamis, the power of God. But you lack perspective. It turns out that perspective is the hindrance to sanctification, not power. Some of you say, I don't have the power to change. You're right. You don't have the power to change yourself. So why don't you stop it? You know, God's being patient this whole time while you're off trying to change yourself, you know, for the better. You know. You know, putting a lipstick. Yeah, look at the lipstick. Putting a lipstick on and the, the eyelashes and the little bow. That's just the men. <laughs> Why not? We're in the 20, 2017, right? I think men spend more time on their hair and their eyebrows than women do nowadays, but that's another story. It turns out that perspective is the hindrance to sanctification, not power. This is one of the things he's been trying to show us, my friends. You already have all the power available to you. It's your perspective. If your perspective is skewed, we, or if, we are, if our perspective is skewed, we tend to turn to that which we've already known naturally. The flesh's power to sanctify, which is really what? Weakness. And that's the deception. That's the great deception. That's where our perspective is skewed. We think we can somehow make ourselves better and we forget. And the world, is the world not constantly tempting us down that road make yourself better do this little thing do that little thing make sure though when you sign your name you get all the glory make sure though before you leave the soup kitchen somebody sees you and takes notice so that you get all the glory make sure that you have a group text to tell everyone you know on the sly oh is everybody going out tonight because I'm just coming from the soup kitchen you know how people do that kind of a thing. Let me just slip this in there. Oh, you know, I've been reading this book. I'm not sure if you ever heard about it. The Bible? Or this book from so-and-so, or so-and-so, or so-and-so. And it's so awesome because, you know, I'm just such a performance-oriented Christian. No, you're stupid. And you're still trying to sanctify yourself, by yourself, for yourself. And that's weakness. That's all he's trying to tell us. You already have all the power available to you. So much of our own sanctification is based on trust. And the way we learn to trust in the Lord is to stop trusting in other things. With that in mind, let's press on. Last Sunday, we were given the following. Go to Proverbs 3.5. Proverbs 3 5. You want that perspective that sets you free? Trust in the Lord. You want to be in prison? You want to lack that peace that the Lord gave you? You want to thwart it somehow or hinder it somehow or darken it somehow? Don't trust in the Lord. Trust in your own ways. Proverbs 3.5 Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. Up here on the board, the simple life, healing to your body. If you just get the right perspective, if you just know to trust in the Lord for everything, it will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. 
And don't think that learning the Word of God, because He is the Word of God, isn't these same things. The simple life. If our perspective is wrong, if our flesh is in control rather than the Spirit, our lives become very complicated, frustrating, and void of peace. We can fake it, but we're only fooling ourselves. Surrender and be free. Sounds odd, doesn't it? Surrender and be free. That's not a perspective you're going to get from the world. Not at all. You're going to get the exact opposite, that you have to seize something. You have to seize freedom by being, you know, the so-called self-made man or woman to be that independent person, somehow that is considered freedom when it's actually bondage. I'll give you this on the simple life. Remember, the strategy of your enemies is to complicate life, whereas Jesus wants to simplify it. The strategy of your enemies is to complicate your life. Oh, you're done with that? Here. Spend some time with that. Oh, you're done with that? Here, here's some more. Spend some time with that. Oh, you're done with that? Here's yet another thing. And you're just like a little rabbit with a carrot, chasing the next carrot and chasing the next thing. For some of you, it's relationships. God forbid. For others of you, it's material things. Ugh. For other views, it's beauty, but it's fleeting. So just give it up because um, you're sagging and you've you got bags under your eyes. And your hair's brittle. So stop doing things to it. Just get over it. Just shave it off like me. It's not supposed to be complicated. The only reason those things are complicated, everybody's laughing, right? It was like, ha, ha, ha. But the reality is, those things bring complications in your life. And... It's true. I hate to break it to you, guys, ladies, manscapers, ladiescapers. All those little tricks you're doing to stay, you know, um, in keeping with your peers in this world, you know, to keep up the facade, to make sure you don't lose that little pocket of uh, power that you have, that you can pull out whenever you'd like. Look at that, I just got what I want. I got a free coffee. Free drink. That's just what I do. Just kidding. <laughs> kidding. Do you know what I'm getting at? You know exactly what I'm getting at. We have these little pockets of little favorite fleshly things that we pull out at parties so we can get what we want. Right? Or social gatherings so we can get what we want. No one's paying attention to me. Let me just do a cotwheel in the middle of the room. Nobody's done that either? Nobody's paying attention to me. Let me uh, do this. Let me tell a vile joke. Nobody's paying attention to me. Let me flip my hair. Let me flex my muscle. Let me, I don't know. What do you people do? What is it that you do, seriously, to gain attention to your flesh so you can manipulate and motivate other people's fleshes? Do you understand all the Spirit's saying here is those things are complications in your life. Imagine your life if you weren't so anxious about not being noticed. Imagine your life if you're an artist and you don't care if your name is signed to the picture. You just want to bring glory to God. You just want to share beauty. Imagine that. Imagine if that was your only desire. Wouldn't life be less complicated? You bet. You wouldn't be worried about people evaluating you what does the Bible say? Other people's flesh doesn't have the ability to evaluate you. Not even able. So why surrender to that life? Keep it simple. The more complicated our lives become, the more futile Sanctifi sanctification seems to be. Again, perspective. The more complicated our lives become, the more futile sanctification seems to be. 
But the truth is that any confusion is all smoke and mirrors, my friends. It's all smoke and mirrors. All this confusion that you think exists is smoke and mirrors. For that is how our enemies work. They exert power. You ready? This is going to, this is going to sound funny. They exert power without power. They exert power without power. Let me explain. Let me give you a parable, a homemade one. So it's going to stink compared to Jesus's, but so be it. A man is a couple of hours away from his home, traveling for work or whatever. Out of the blue, he receives a very convincing text message from an unknown number. The message says, if you don't get home right now, I'm going to kill your wife and kids where they stand. And he receives a picture of a person pointing a gun at his family in his own backyard. The text then says that if he tries to call and warn his family, or anyone, he'll forfeit this one-time offer and the killer will assassinate them all. For whatever reason, this man believes the text, jumps in his car, and begins racing home. Along the way, he misjudges a bad turn, slams into a tree, and dies. The officers at the scene find his cell phone. They see the text message and they trace it back to its origin. It turns out the pictures were photoshopped by a couple of junior high school kids playing a practical joke. They had gotten the picture in the man's family of the man's family and his cell number off of Facebook and photoshopped a gunman into the scene. The only guns they actually own are water pistols. So the man was killed by the exertion of his own power, all because he was deceived. You see, that's the way our enemies work. They use deceit and trickery to make us destroy and harm ourselves under our own power. Don't believe me? I don't know. Pull some of your hair out and take a look at how beat up it is from how you destroy it. Look in the mirror. I don't know. What is it that you're tricked about? What is it that you are destroying yourselves over? Well, nobody likes me enough. Uh, I'm not popular. I'm, you know, the world tells me since I'm not this or that as a man, I'm, I'm a failure. So I'm just going to drink myself into oblivion. You bought a lie. You're the one picking up the drink. You're the one doing that thing, not your enemies. They have no power over you. The only reason it's happening is because you have given that thing power. The only reason your life is overcomplicated and you need to resort to such things is because your perspective is off. Somewhere along the line, you bought a lie. Hook, line, and sinker. That your signature in this world is your beauty. That your signature is your personality. That your signature is your intellect. You name it, whatever your fleshly poison is, give it up. Your signature should be stamped with the name Jesus Christ with everything that you do. But we destroy ourselves day in and day out. We kill ourselves. For what? 
and our enemies are laughing at us and they have no real power over us. Uh, up here on the board. Our enemies, I've taught this at length in the past several times, our enemies don't have any real power over us. That's the joke. <laughs> if you're saved, born again, you're dead to sin. Our enemies don't have any real power over us. Only that which we give to their cause. They use deception ingeniously to get us to inflict pain in our own lives. Stop being manipulated. Stop being controlled. And better yet, stop trying to control other people and stop trying to manipulate other people. It's grotesque. Both the giver and the receiver live overcomplicated lives. Simple. Life should be simple if you're saved. Our enemies don't have any real power over us, only that which we give to their cause. Think about that this afternoon. Stop blaming other people for your problems. Oh, well, so and so. Hey, listen, that happened when you were 12. You're 60 now. It's time to get over it. Oh, well, so and so did this to me. Get over yourself. Why do they still have power over you? And you've never done anything to anybody else? You get the point? Wrong perspective altogether. Our enemies use deception ingeniously to get us to inflict pain in our own lives. It's incredible what we do to ourselves. And it's true. We do it to ourselves. I think I wrote a blog on this. I've been thinking a lot about this um, in my downtime. One of the great lies, um, especially I can't speak for other countries necessarily, but one of the great lies in this country of ours is that you're no longer required to take responsibility for yourself. Somehow everybody's a victim. Everybody's a victim. And when you become a victim, you know what that means. You're not responsible for the condition you're in. But that's not what the Spirit's trying to tell us. What the Spirit's saying is, you're the one who got yourself in that pickle. You're the one who's done this. You're not a victim. And I'm not talking about people who have been abused, overpowered. I'm talking about people who have done things to themselves, made poor decisions, been influenced by their enemies, and made terrible decisions, and then they turn around and live their lives and blame those enemies the rest of their lives and never take responsibility for their own stinking actions. And because of that, because of that, they live a tortured life. While their enemies off gallivanting, tortured, you know, uh, having power over someone else that they have no real power over. It's all smoke and mirrors. Surrender to Jesus. Keep your life simple and things will go grand. Some of you, if it's only that simple, you don't understand. I do understand, honestly. Not maybe in your shoes, but I have my own shoes. I understand. Nobody's perfect yet but this is the way it is. Life really is that simple. What do you think ultimately it's going to be like in heaven? Think it's going to be complicated or simple? It's going to be very simple. It's going to be awesome. Amen? It's going to be awesome. But you're not there yet, so stop living then. Live now. Live for then, but you've got to live now. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm just on cruise control right now because this life sucks. What kind of attitude is that? If you can show me that in the Bible, that attitude, I'll teach it. But otherwise, your perspective is goofy. You're supposed to be bringing glory to God. 
Whatever happened to that attitude? Whatever happened to living, living in the imminent return of Christ, the one who saved you? Whatever happened to that attitude? When did you become so stale and anxious and miserable? When did it happen? Probably when you stopped taking responsibility for yourself. Probably when you bought the lie more and more. One of the greatest ways our enemies does all of this is to get us to forsake God's grace in our lives. To get us thinking poorly or doubting that God's got our best interests in mind at all times. That's how he gets us. God's grace isn't enough, I suppose. As soon as that happens in you, you are destined for misery. You are destined to lose some portion of the peace that the Lord himself gave you when he saved you. And so our flesh steps in and tries to take things over. But as we've been learning up here on the board, that, my friends, is the very definition of futility. When your flesh steps in, tries to take over, tries to start solving problems, that's futility. The flesh wants to stake a claim to life, but it's dead, and therefore literally incapable of doing so. A corpse cannot get up and walk. Trying to use human rationalism to find your faith is supposing this very thing. That's a review. We will continue to make note of these overarching themes as we continue with our primary course of study. Why are the apostles so encouraging? By grace they were prepared. Believe it or not, I'm going to plug on a little bit further. How's my voice, all right? It's hanging in there. I'm using my diaphragm more than I think I ever have. It's making me dizzy. I'm over-oxygenating. Is that possible? Yeah, it's kind of good, actually. Let's try this at home. Hey, better than alternatives. Changing gears. Here's our running framework in our lessons on this topic. We've been studying the apostles and their encouragement. This is part 25. And here's the framework. Uh, we could have used you know, any multitude of frameworks. This is the one that he's got us on to keep us on the, you know, in the confines of our curriculum. Sending the apostles out. Jesus called them. We've already studied that. Jesus trained them academically and on-the-job training. And then Jesus sends them out. We're not to that point yet. We've sort of tickled verses that, um, where those, that particular thing was happening. But for the most part, the emphasis has been on the training itself. And we've been garnering our own form of encouragement because you're all sitting here today being trained by one of his under-shepherds. We are still, again, on the second bullet on the board, on Thursday uh, last, or two Thursdays ago, I believe, we began looking at obstacles Jesus faced when training up the apostles. We got through most of the first five points up here on the board. Or the first of the five points, which was understanding. These are just five things that we can point to when Jesus was training up the apostles and you should be able to relate firsthand, personally, to the things that the apostles lacked. First, they lacked understanding. They lacked humility. They lacked faith. They lacked commitment. And they lacked power. And that power we'll get into in a bit. Go to Matthew 16, 15. Matthew 16, 
15. So first off, they lacked understanding. This, in other words, these are the raw materials that Jesus had to work with. Matthew 16, 15, and he said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Peter is Petros up here on the board. We might say, you know, like a chip off the old block. Because Jesus calls himself the Petros, the, the rock. What an amazing bit of encouragement Peter received from the rock, Jesus Christ. The apostles were among the first living stones, 1 Peter 2.5. But Christ, of course, is the cornerstone, 1 Peter 2.6-7. Again, verse 18 I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Then he warned the disciples that they should tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And this is the crazy thing, you know, Peter, Petrus. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. See, Peter still didn't understand. After all that, after all that Jesus had taught him, still didn't get it. Still let his flesh get in the way. And that's why Satan, or, uh, Jesus called him, or referred to him as Satan. Get behind me. You're a stumbling block to me. Your mind is on fleshly things. That's where we ended um, a couple of Thursdays ago. We had another passage to consider regarding our first point that the apostles lacked understanding. Go to Luke 18.31. Luke 18.31. We're still on the bullet titled Understanding, this is one of the things that the apostles lacked in raw materials. Luke 18.31, another situation certainly that we can relate to. I mean, how many people came to church, um, say a church like this one, for the very first time and understood everything the pastor was saying? Or... Go home and read your Bible and understand everything the Bible was saying first time through. <laughs> if you say I did, you got problems. You are really, really, really arrogant. But anyways, Luke 18.31, so we shouldn't be discouraged, we should be encouraged is the point. 31, then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. You ready? But his disciples understood none of these things. Pfft. 
and the meaning of the statement was hidden from them, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. I'll give you McDonald's take on this particular passage. I understood none of these things. The reason probably is this. Their minds were so filled with thoughts of a temporal deliverer. Now think of context. Remember, they wanted a king now. They were looking and waiting for the kingdom, and they assumed since he was the king, the Messiah, the Christ, that he was going to stick around and usher in the kingdom. And that's where their eyes were on temporal things. Do you understand? And that's how they were cultured even. So it's not always a, you know, a blatant disregard. A lot of it is how you're cultured. I mean, look at all the work that the Spirit's been doing in you Americans this past couple of years. How much of the American culture have we had to dispel? Have we had to go, wait a minute, is that actually, is that actually godly? What I think this, this tradition or this thing that Americans do, American Christians even do, is that actually godly? No. And so, because you grew up in this country, God in His divine patience says, I'll wait around until I can deliver you, until there's the right material set before you and the timing is right that I can deliver you from those things. And if you look at the curriculum and the blogs and everything else over the past, let's just say the last year even, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Your thoughts were filled with temporal things. Your thoughts were Americanized Christianity. Therefore, your thoughts you, need to be, you needed to be delivered from. Some of you still have a very long way to go. Some of you have come a very long way. And there's still a long way to go. But this is the mindset. This is why they didn't understand. Because like you, they were cultured in a certain way in their expectations, in their preconceptions, even about the things of God. You know, the kingdom of God is a godly reality, is it not? It's just their perspective on it was misappropriated, misplaced. They had it wrong on God's timeline. They had it wrong. You understand? They understood that He was the king, but they didn't understand when He was actually going to reign. Earth, Earthly-wise. And so some of you need to take note of this in your own lives and say, what is it in my life? I'm going to go home. I'm going to sit in front of a television. Or I'm going to sit out my back deck. Or I'm going to walk the dog. Or does anybody walk cats? I don't know. Someone might. I'm going to walk my cat. I'm going to, work, or I'm going to walk my hamster. I'm going to ride my bicycle. I'm going to ride my motorcycle. I'm going to go get my nails done. I'm going to go get my eyes waxed. That's a guy, by the way, because he manscapes more than women now. I'm going to do all these things, you see. And then you have to step back, and the Spirit's going to say, what are you doing? And who are you doing this for? Why are you stuck in this rut? Why, are your mind, why is your mind still on those things when Colossians 3, I sent my under-shepherd Paul to speak to you. Keep your mind on the things above, not on the things on the earth. Why is your mind still on these? Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Why are you going to go right back to the mire? For the same reason that the apostles were stuck in the mire. Because they were cultured just like you. Stuck in your own ridiculousness that you were taught. Anyways. The reason is probably this. Their minds were so filled with thoughts of a temporal deliverer who would rescue them from the yoke of Rome and set up the kingdom immediately that they refused to entertain any other program. And this is what I love about what McDonald, he's paraphrasing what I just said. And this is another huge thing that um, I've been pondering for a very long time. People often believe what they want to believe. I'm going I'm to go stronger than McDonald on this one. People believe what they want to believe. 
I'm not even going to be that soft. You know, we often believe what we want to believe and resist the truth if it does not fit into our preconceived notions. I would say the vast majority of Christians, so-called Christians, because I believe many of them aren't even saved, but that's another story. <clears throat> the vast majority of Christians believe what they want to believe. And there's a reason why a church like this that teaches the unadulterated truth day in and day out is this size. And not the size of like a Joel Osteen who has 50,000 people. And it's not because he's better looking than me. Or he has whiter teeth, which he does. Or curlier hair, which he does. Or whatever he's got. Or 15 mansions. Or however many houses he's got. It's not because of those things. It's because of one thing. It's because he's a liar and a fool and a charlatan and a salesman, and a hypocrite. He's a lot of things. Amongst a lot of other public preachers who some of you have adored in the past and are shocked when you come up to me and mention their name and I put them in their place and you're kind of like, oh, well, I guess I won't talk to you about anything else other than North Christian Church. That's not the point at all. I'm trying to open up your eyes. But people don't want to Believe the truth. They want to believe what they want to believe. Why? Because it favors their lifestyle. It fits in. It's non-disruptive. We often believe what we want to believe and resist the truth if it does not fit into our preconceived notions. Spot on. Again, the disciples understood None of these things. So I think I'll begin to end here because my voice is just about ready to die off, slow death, ride off into the sunset. <laughs> this is an incredible statement. But is it really? Yeah, the disciples understood none of these things. Is it really? I mean, is what McDonald postulates on the board True with all of us, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. So let me, let me end with some reflection then. Consider how many times in your own life that you've heard clearly stated doctrine from the Word of God and literally ignored it. We'll say it again. Consider how many times in your own life that you've heard clearly stated doctrine. I'm talking about the very voice of God coming to you by the grace of God and the love of God. And you ignore it flat out. Yeah, I know. I'm just going to put my head down for this point. I'm just going to do this until he shuts up. Because I can't handle the truth. I don't want to hear the truth. You know what? I don't think that applies to me. If you're sitting here, everything that comes from this pulpit applies to you. Everything. Even if, oh, I've never been this, I've never been an alcoholic. Oh, good for you. Stop drinking in front of your alcoholic family then. Why don't you start living for others? How about that? I wish you had closed. I wish your voice was gone. <laughs> so ask yourselves, how many times have you heard clearly stated doctrine from the Word of God and you've ignored it? Flat out. Literally ignored it. Only to find out, maybe, at some later date, often when you're more mature in the faith, that you had ridiculously dismissed it because it didn't sit well with your preconceptions about life or God or whatever. You don't like it. I'm thinking of the dating one right now. That's a huge one. What do you mean? I, what, what, I don't think that's true at all. Who says who? America? 
Seriously, says who? America or the Word of God? What's the Word of God have to say on that subject? A lot, as we've learned. But I don't like it, so I'm going to ignore it. I'm not going to tell my kids about it because they won't like it. And I don't want to be contentious in family gatherings. And I don't want to be this or I don't want to be that. Well, who are you fighting for, by the way? Whose name are you standing up for? Honestly. Who are you fighting for? You know what Jesus said? He says, I came to divide households. Not workplaces. Households. And a household of five? Three against two, two against three, he said. That's about as intimate as it gets, isn't it? Your own household? And some of you will never, ever stand up for Jesus Christ in your own families because you're cowards, because you don't want to give up your own preconceptions, and then you'll call it grace. Oh, I'm showing them grace. No, you're not. You're a coward. That's not grace. That's cowardice. Jesus Christ said, of five, three against two, two against three. That's clearly stated doctrine. What's your version? Oh, well, I learned it um, in this old religion I used to tend to. I learned it from this, or I learned it from that, or it doesn't seem socially acceptable, or I don't want to be contentious, and it's just easier for me to be a, a wet rag in the corner Why is it so quiet in here? By the way, these conversations I have every day with myself. Every single day. I probably blow at least one divine appointment a day. At least one. Sometimes several, depending on how far I drive out of the house. <laughs> and I walk away and I go, you're a coward. And I'm very creative with my language. I was ex-military, so you can fill in the blanks. You're a coward. And I am. And there's no other way to get around it. I'm a coward. And I'm leading you. So what's that make you? Student can't be greater than the teacher. <laughs> Cowards. You know, when we think about those things, those are the times we have our little epiphanies. Just take some time. Thank God as we close here. Thank God for God's patience, huh? And you look back and you go, how did I not see that before? How did I not see it before? You weren't ready, my friends. You just weren't ready. It's the conversation I have with people about this very ministry. You just weren't ready until today to hear some of the things that you've heard from this pulpit today. If I had given you some of the things that I gave you today on day one of this ministry, most of you would have left. Are you at least going to be that honest with yourselves? Most of you would have chalked me up as a crackpot. But now your soul is saying, right on. That's right. It's totally true. It just took me a while. Epiphanies, they're beautiful. So there are times when you have your little epiphanies and, you know, folks like yours truly sort of just say, you know, I'm just saying here, taught you that like five years ago. I'm just saying. That's always my favorite. Tammy or Sean or even Joey when he was around come home from a Tuesday night. Oh, man. This, this principle Scott was teaching on? I'm like, I've been teaching that for five years. What in the heck is going on? They weren't ready. Or they needed to hear it from a different person because of some stumble. I don't know, familiar. I don't know what it is. Who cares? And the point is, it's not about me and Scott. It's about the truth. It's about getting the truth. Amen? Because the truth will what? 
set you free. Isn't that what you want? Or, I'll close with this, or you can ignore the epiphanies and you can go right back to your overcomplicated, uh, self-inflicted, painful life. Freedom or that? Life or death? What are you going to choose? What does God say? Choose life that you may what? Live. Oh, some of you don't know that passage. I'm sorry. Choose life that you may... Come on, I just gave you a layup. Choose life that you may what? Oh, man. I can't be louder than you. I'm the one without a voice. Amen? Life is good. Life is good. Don't be condemned. Woo. Don't be condemned. Be good with all of this. Relax. Go home. Relax. Take it in stride. Uh, don't be guilty because you're not going to change right away. Take it in stride. But accept what you are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Okay, one more thing. I'm just kidding. I'm just going to keep doing that. Say amen. I'm trying to get you to laugh because you're kind of tight. Everybody go like this. Do it. Do it faster. Hold on, let me get my camera. Anyways. All right, let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this opportunity to gather together as family in the unity of the faith. Thank you for letting us on occasion laugh at ourselves. What else can we do, Father? It's just laughable, the things that the flesh and our enemies try to do. It's laughable that we empower our enemies with our own power to bring us back to bondage that really doesn't even exist or shouldn't exist in our lives anymore because you, Father, through the very work and sacrifice of your Son, the Lamb of God, have taken away such things, have delivered us from the throes of sin and death itself. Thank you, Father, for times like these. Thank you for giving us perspective. Thank you for sanctifying us. We ask for traveling mercies as we take everything that we've learned this morning out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.